The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, the familiar resurrection narrative, Pew Bible, page 835. Matthew gives us one of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Give ear to God's word as I read. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of our God endures forever. We stand here this morning proclaiming that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. This mighty truth is at the very foundation of the gospel, the good news we preach. If Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins, the apostle 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. But the undisputable truth of God's word, as well as the undeniable fact of history, is that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. The unbelieving world and the powers of darkness will always oppose the clear declaration of this truth. But thanks be to God, those who belong to Jesus by faith can stake their very lives on this good news. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that death is not the final word, that because he lives, we too shall live with him forever. I want us to see this morning three important truths from Matthew's familiar account. The first is this, the world's opposition to the truth of the resurrection. The world's opposition to the truth of the resurrection. Here we see, after the crucifixion, that the leaders are still scheming, even after Jesus has died on the cross, They have to come up with a further plan because, ironically, they remember that Jesus predicted that he would rise again in three days, even though his disciples seem to have forgotten that. They remember, and so they discuss this and go to Pilate and ask for his permission to guard the tomb. And in verse 65, he says, you have a guard, or it can be translated, take a guard, depending on how you translate that phrase. It could be interpreted as the temple guard, the Jewish temple guard, or my view, and I think the more likely view, is that Pilate gives them a Roman escort, a Roman soldiers, because later we have read that they have to go to the governor, more likely when word gets back to him that the soldiers had apparently fallen asleep. The penalty for that would have been death. Pilate says, take a guard. And then they seal the tomb. The tomb is sealed with a stone and a, the setting of a guard. And it's secured with this, this wax seal, this cord with a wax imprint so that if the cord is broken in any way and someone breaks into the tomb, there's evidence of it. And so the guard is stationed at the tomb, watching, guarding against potential thieving disciples almost humorous because that was the furthest thing in the disciples' mind, that they would go and somehow get around the Roman guard and move the stone and take the body of Jesus somewhere as if somehow that would make things right. But the disciples don't come. Someone else comes to the tomb. And we read about it in verses 2, 3, and 4. Behold, there was a great earthquake. And in conjunction with that earthquake, we read, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And the guards become like dead men. We find his appearance is like lightning. The efforts of the leaders and these guards is an illustration of what we read in Psalm 2, which tells us the kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What an example of taking counsel against the Lord. But later in the psalm, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Speaking of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Ever since Jesus broke the bands of death, the unbelieving systems of this world have resisted the truth of the resurrection. We see it 
immediately in the book of Acts, as the disciples begin to take the gospel out to the world of that time, the known world, there's resistance, there's persecution, there are beatings and stonings. There are all kinds of things that are done to prevent this. But still the gospel goes out. And then we see it in the early church with Christians persecuted for their faith and many martyred for refusing to call Caesar Lord, but to worship only Jesus Christ as the true Lord. And then we see it over and over again in the centuries of church history as believers have been persecuted and opposed as they hold forth the truth of God. And even now in our day, we see it in some places of the world with ferocity against the gospel. But in the West, we see it with mocking and ridicule, with the resurrection treated as a mere myth or as a child's fairy tale. Note that these leaders in Matthew 28 resisted the fact of the resurrection even though there was credible testimony which involved even supernatural confirmation. The soldiers return and tell what really happened. They tell about the earthquake and the angel descending and in verse 3, the striking appearance of this angel, whether or not everyone saw this, some of them did, and This angel was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. What a sight to behold. It was so terrifying to them that they were struck as though they were dead. And then there's this account of the angel stated in very understated terms that he rolled back the stone. This was a massive round disc of a stone that was chiseled so that it would fit into a groove that had also been cut outside the opening of the grave. And so you would roll that stone down so that it would be in place in front of the opening of the grave so that it would be nearly impossible to move. I can imagine 12 Roman soldiers trying to get that stone back up that groove and get it out of the way. It would have been a very hard thing. You would need many men to do that. But the text simply states with brevity, an angel of the Lord descended and came and rolled back the stone Apparently, it wasn't a hard job for one angel to do that. And then you can imagine him sitting there on the stone with a smile on his face and good news for the women as they came. He is not here. He is risen. I have to think that the angel was smiling as he declared the resurrection of the Lord of heaven and earth. And remember, he rolled back the stone not to let Jesus out as if Jesus needed someone to roll back the stone for him. Jesus was already resurrected. He was already out of the grave. The angel rolled back the stone so that the women and eventually the disciples could see that Jesus was risen from the dead. It was evidence. The soldiers must have gone into that tomb eventually and said, what happened? But what is the immediate impact of all this clear and dramatic evidence Well, verses 11 to 15, we read, it was a plot to cover up. It was the manufacturing of a false narrative. It's interesting, we don't even see a hint that these leaders began to wonder, well, could these things be true? No, immediately they went into cover-up mode. This reaction shows us the nature of unbelief. Unbelief doesn't calmly and objectively weigh all the evidence and think it all through to see what is really true. No, the nature of our hearts 
without the work of the Holy Spirit is to suppress the truth of God because to embrace the truth of God demands that we give our very lives to the one who rose from the dead. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus Christ is Lord and he demands our complete allegiance that we bow before him as our living Lord with faith and love and joyful obedience. You see, you don't have to actively go to great lengths to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to really deny and suppress God's truth in your own heart and life, to fail to give him his rightful place as Lord of your life. No, you can just ignore the resurrection. You can even celebrate Easter and come to church and be with family or friends and have a nice meal and disregard the resurrection. You just hold the gospel at arm's length, whether it's true or not. You may not be sure, but you inwardly disregard Jesus Christ. The world's opposition to the truth of the resurrection. But secondly, we see that the truth of the resurrection is undeniable. The truth of the resurrection is Uncontainable, it's undeniable. In the providence of God, we see in our text that the plotting of the very leaders and the posting of this guard was overruled by God for good. God promises to do that with all evil eventually. We don't see it now, but we know that he will. And the presence of the guard make it impossible to prove that, a resur- that the resurrection was a deception. Think of it, what an irony the stone, the seal, the guard, only serve to authenticate the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. The leaders had intended to do all this, to place a guard there, to stop, to squelch possible rumors. But their very plot ended up making the truth of the resurrection all that more credible, all that more believable. Think of it. Think of how the truth comes out. You know, it was decades after Benedict Arnold betrayed his nation that the truth came out, maybe even a hundred years before we found out that really Benedict Arnold's wife was part of the plot. She had lived the rest of her life with no one else knowing that, but the truth eventually came out. And even though in the Gospel of Matthew we read that that the false story of the disciples stealing the body was spread around, clearly the truth got out too. And you can almost imagine with a smile the Roman soldiers back at their barracks when one of their best friends said, well, tell me what really happened Did you really fall asleep on your post? No, this is what happened. Or going back to their their wives and telling them the truth and their wife tells another wife and another soldier hears and the word is spreading. You know how that is. If you just tell one person something, don't tell anyone else. And then they tell someone else, don't tell anyone else. And it's on it goes. And so the bribery, the hush money, the fake narrative and the political gymnastics to keep the soldiers from facing the consequences of having fallen asleep. None of this was hidden. It all came to light. 
But in contrast to this false narrative, let me just put before you a brief survey of the evidence we see here and in the other Gospels. First of all, we see that the resurrection was completely unexpected in terms of what the disciples were expecting. The women come to the grave early in the morning. The Sabbath is over. They can finally come and rightly prepare the body for burial. Are they expecting to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead? No, they are grieving. And so this was not something that anyone engineered. But also, we see that the other Only other explanations are all inadequate for what really happened. The best two over the years that have ever been suggested are one is called the swoon theory, swoon as in fainting or passing out, that Jesus only swooned on the cross, that he didn't really die, but that is contradicted by the clear biblical evidence that the centurion Pilate called the centurion to find out if he was really dead. This was a man who oversaw executions regularly, who knew when someone was dead. And they had stuck the spear in Jesus' chest cavity to make sure he was dead, and blood and water poured out. He didn't just pass out. And then the other theory is that the disciples stole the body and hid it some way. I hope we see that that's impossible. But not only is there no other adequate explanation... Just what happened to the disciples going from doubt and fear to great boldness? In the New Testament, we see that. In Acts 2, they come publicly and begin to preach the gospel in the very city where Jesus was put to death. If the resurrection was a lie, would the disciples have spent the rest of their lives preaching and laboring And for most of them, dying a martyr's death for this cause, if they had known it was just a manufactured lie, would they have suffered all that they suffered and counted every cost to make known a resurrection that they had simply concocted? It's very unlikely. In fact, I would say it's impossible. And then you could almost say even more importantly, we have the eyewitness testimony, and that's the evidence here. The angel tells the Women, look at the tomb. He's risen. Go tell the disciples. Jesus Christ himself tells them and shows them that he's alive. And then eventually we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, where the apostle Paul writes, then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And he says, most of whom are still alive. Do you realize the power of that eyewitness testimony? Paul is saying, look, You don't have to believe me. Go talk to some of the 500 that are still alive. Ask all of them. You've got tremendous, credible testimony confirmed by many others. And then then finally, the evidence of the explosive growth of the church. The church grew exponentially. Jesus rose and poured out his Holy Spirit, and thousands upon thousands At first, and then millions upon millions of people's lives are transformed by the power of the resurrection, transforming whole cultures and societies eventually as the gospel goes forth with power. A few weeks ago, Open Doors International, an organization that keeps track of persecution around the world, 
they published their annual World Watch List, giving the statistics for the intensity of the persecution of Christians around the world. Last year, they tell us that one in nine Christians in the world, one out of every nine Christians experienced serious persecution for their faith. That's a 14% increase from the year before. Christians are enduring high levels of persecution in 73 countries of the world. That's almost half of the countries monitored. And almost 70% of Christians in the world, 70% of all the Christians in the world, live without the right to worship freely. There is still much opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ in the world. Yet even with 20 centuries of opposition, The gospel going forth into the world, transforming lives, shows the power of the risen Lord. The evidence is still there and still coming in. Jesus worked through the disciples then, and he works in and through his present-day disciples now by the same power of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is undeniable. And that brings me to my third point, my last point. The resurrection of Jesus turns the world upside down. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, when the early church begins to spread and the disciples go out and Peter and Paul begin to preach, and in Acts 17, verse 6, we find that Paul and Silas have come to the town of Thessalonica, and there are opponents there. But these opponents drag some of the new converts before the town authorities. And they shout out, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Little did they know what they were saying. These men who have turned the world upside down and how true that was. They were talking about Paul and Silas who preached the gospel and the impact of that good news that was having in their day. But the real reason that Paul's preaching was turning the world upside down was because the resurrection of Jesus Christ had already turned everything upside down. He had turned death itself upside down by defeating it. He had defeated all the powers of darkness and sin and hell. Think of the transformation of these women in Matthew 28. Here they they go early to the tomb. Their hearts are broken. Jesus, whom they loved and they thought was going to deliver them and and all fell apart and they go to the tomb to do the only thing that was left to do, to prepare the body for burial in a right way, to pour out to him their love in this way and their deep sorrow and their grief. But what a turnaround. Can you imagine? Wonder of wonders. They, They see the angel and the empty tomb And they are commissioned to tell the good news. And in verse 8, we read, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. They are staggered beyond imagination. They cannot take it in. They heard good news almost beyond comprehension. And then, even beyond that, verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
he says to them, go tell my brothers. In the Gospel of John, we find he also says, say to my brothers, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The death and resurrection of Jesus turned the world upside down. Jesus can say, to my Father and your Father, because he has now triumphed over sin and death and hell on behalf of all of those who will trust in him. He's won the victory. He's gained salvation on behalf of all those who will, by faith, come to him. And by his resurrection, his mighty work on the cross is vindicated once and for all, and he is declared to be the Son of God with power to save all who will come to him. And in fact, God takes the most horrific deed in the history of the world, which was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the most horrible deed, the killing of the spotless Son of God, and turns that death into the perfect atonement for our sins, the very means by which we would be saved. And that victory is just the first fruits. Jesus' resurrection, we're told, is the first fruits. It's the down payment, the pledge of the whole harvest to come, the resurrection of every disciple of Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will remake the world and right every wrong and judge all evil and create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's a place at the end of Tolkien's famous story, The Lord of the Rings, when Sam Gamgee, one of the main characters, good old Sam, wakes up after his quest with Frodo to destroy the ring, and he soon learns that his dear companions are all alive. He can't believe it, even the ones whom he thought were dead. And the terrible darkness of the enemy and the threat of the enemy is now gone, and Lo and behold, his old friend Strider, who had been a companion on the trip, has been crowned king. He can't believe all the good news, and good old Sam bursts out with this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The fact is, the undeniable truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that for every person who belongs to him, everything sad will come untrue. That's the promise of the gospel. As the hymn says, endless is the victory thou or death has won. Every tear dry, every sorrow healed, every remnant of sin erased, every injustice judged, and the bride of Christ now fully redeemed from every place and every time, dazzling in their bright garment of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is undeniable. That is the truth of God. It gives new life, and one day, by the power of his resurrection, Jesus will renew the entire universe. And for us as Christians, we wait in certain hope. We wait in eager expectation, knowing that Jesus lives and he reigns and he will return to do all of this. And in him, we are given new life and a right relationship to God. 
If you've never received Jesus Christ, may you trust in him on this resurrection day. Amen. Father, we stand in fear and joy as the women did as they heard and saw and experienced that first resurrection morning. Father, we are moved by the greatness of our Lord, the greatness of our God, the wonder of your plan of salvation. Lord, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see the truth of the risen Lord and to embrace his claims and his calling on our lives to trust in him, to give him our lives, to live for him from this time forth. We ask in his name. Amen.